in my head, though, all the time. <laughs> That's going to be playing over and over in my head right now. Do be praying, of course, for uh, brought up in our prayer request for Brother Stephen Troyell. He was with us, I believe it was 2016 late winter, I believe is when that was. That might have been 2017. I can't remember exactly when he was here. And he had come through just for a Sunday uh, he, that he was with us. He was with us all day that Sunday. And uh, it certainly was tragic. I have no doubt in reading of the account. If, if It wouldn't take you much online to find some of the... Right, some of the uh, uh, some Iraqis that were writing about the event that had happened when you're going to, to different places in Baghdad website. I, I have no doubt, or none of them said that directly, that they found out that he was actually a missionary. Um, he worked, of course, at a language center there. And it was followed once he left by two cars. And then they got to a certain location. One car pulled up and blocked him, him, him and his wife and his three girls and a little boy. Uh, they blocked his car. Two men got out, and I, from what one account I read, I don't know if that's true or not, they had silencers even on their weapons at the time, and shot him four times right there in front of his family. And so be praying for them. He is out of uh, a graduate of Crown. That's also his home church, Temple Baptist there with uh, Brother Clarence Sexton. It's a large church. That church runs, I don't know, probably 1,500, I would imagine, what Brother Clarence Sexton runs. And, uh, but certainly praying for, for the wife and the daughters. And, and, the, and I'm sure many of you have probably read this statement. You go out the family. They're just asking for privacy during this time right now. And, and uh, you could just imagine what that mom and daughter is going through, not only losing the dad and husband, but having to witness it by such a violent act. And so certainly praying for them, for their comfort and their peace. You know the Lord's doing that right now. You know the Lord loves them more than any of us do. If they're on our hearts and mind, just imagine how much they're on the Lord's heart and mind with what they had to witness and, uh, uh, but it's good to know one day this is all going to be over with. You know that? It is. All right, First Thessalonians chapter 5. And again, I, I, I believe we will finish it up today. I, when I finished this, I did realize, based on that first point, if that was to go a little bit longer, this might end up being a two-part message, but I, I don't foresee that right now, but we'll see. But verse 23 down through the end of the chapter. He says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be uh, preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who will also do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I do ask for your, your blessing upon the service tonight. One, I pray that you'd be glorified and honored. Lord, help me to stay true to your word. Lord, I, I pray, Lord, that you would use it. I pray for your mercy, your grace, your help. And Lord, I pray it would strengthen us and draw us closer to you. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here who has never truly been converted, I pray for that conviction and that drawing, that even in this evening's service, they'd repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Again, Lord, may you be glorified. I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are concluding the book of 1 Thessalonians uh, here this evening. It has been a great book. I've enjoyed it. I am looking forward to getting into 2 Thessalonians. It will follow right up. And again, this was the this was that one of the very few churches, really, in the way he worded it here. It's the only church he worded it that way about the great joy that he had in this church. 
I'd say between this and the church at Philippi, which happens to be the church he started right before this one, uh, one that just kept Paul's heart just so thrilled. And this church was born in adversity. We, we, even when we started this off, we looked at the birth of this church, how it all got started. If you remember, that was where Paul had the Macedonian call. He started a second missionary journey. And we're getting ready to get into that in the book of Acts, by the way. We're getting ready to dive into that. It won't be, won't be this week or the next week, but we're, we're heading into that. That is in Acts chapter 15 is the start of the second missionary journey. And he really wasn't sure yet which, wasn't settled which way to go. Then the Lord called him into Europe. And that's where he went into Philippi. Um, he, he, he went there, and then he went into Thessalonica at that time. Remember, that, that was the major city was Thessalonica. It was a large city. Think about, think about it in, in this time in world history. It's a city of about 200,000, 300,000 people in Thessalonica. It was a trade center. Um, it was on a major trade route. Um, it was very cosmopolitan. It was a commercial center. Uh, founded uh, about 350 years prior to this. And uh, it, was, it was named after the sis, the, 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 one of the half-sisters of Alexander the Great, Thessalonica. Um, again, it was the largest city and the capital city in Macedonia. And uh, again, a key city, but it was also wicked. Full, the, the paganism, the idolatry... And crime was just everywhere. That it was known for its crime. And again, Paul uh, went there, and we saw this church and all the adversity as it, as it begun and all that took place. And so he wrote this epistle. Remember, he had to get out of Dodge quick. You know, they, they, they were going to kill him. He gets out. He heads over to Berea. Um, and then he drops down from there down into Athens. And Athens, he was sending people back to Thessalonica. He goes on to Corinth, and he gets into Corinth. That's where Timothy catches up with him from coming back from Thessalonica and gives the report about how the church was doing. And he was just thrilled. They were staying faithful, even with all the adversity that was taking place. And, and he had to send this epistle. One, because there were some questions coming up about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, um, it is thought that either Paul did not quite finish or just, uh, or, or, and on top of that, some bad teaching had come in concerning the second coming to Jesus, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and thinking that perhaps it had already happened or what, not understanding quite how this was to take place. So Paul was responding to that, as well as giving a series of exhortations and commands to help in their, in, in their everyday Christian living. We finished with the series of them, from rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying. Prove all things, holding fast that which is good, abstaining from all appearance of evil. And now we come in this final exhortation. And this is sort of a, a, a signature into it. And don't miss the great truths that are here. I think you'll enjoy this. There is some really, really good stuff, rich stuff that is right here. Uh, much of that reminds us the fact that we do belong to God, that we are to live for Him, and you, we need to take our Christian life seriously. And so we're going to cover this in three areas tonight. It's fairly broken down in the text we read. We're going to cover sanctification, supplication, and socialness that we need to have among each other. So let's, let's dive right into this. Let's look at verse 23 and 24. It says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, he dives into this thing of sanctification. So, I want to take, I want to dive into that, what we're dealing with in these verses. And verse 24, as well, I should be that faithful is he that calleth you and also will do it. 
and refers to the God of peace. This isn't talking about absence of war or fighting or anything like that. It's referring to what God did for us within the gospel, within Christ itself, how he made peace because of the cross. Because we were the enemies of God, and through, and through his cross is what it's referring to, what he did for us when we heard the gospel, when we got saved, we were made at peace with him. And so he addresses God in that way when he now drives from there into this thing of sanctification. And it's certainly something we need to understand. It even ties in with, I'm not going to get into that tonight, as to why we as Christians still need to ask forgiveness of our sins. Sanctifying simply means to be set apart. Biblically, it means to be set apart for God. To be set apart to, from, from wickedness unto holiness. It is the idea. This idea is throughout Scripture. I wrote down several of them in Exodus 13. You had the firstborn was to be sanctified, was to be set apart, belong to God. Exodus 28, Aaron and his sons were to be set apart for God. 1 Samuel 16, Samuel sanctifying David, setting him apart for God. Jeremiah sanctified in, in, uh, to be a prophet, Jeremiah chapter 1. Exodus 19, Mount Sinai set apart for God. The Sabbath day set apart for God. The tabernacle and all the vessels associated with it sanctified, set apart for God. The cities of refuge sanctified, set apart for God. Now, when the gospel came into play and the new birth and, and, and salvation, guess what? We became sanctified, set apart for God. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirits which are His. You've been bought with a price. The very moment you converted to Christ, you were set apart for God. At that moment, that should change the trajectory of your life. You have been sanctified, set apart now, sanctification itself, let's get into a little bit of theology of this quickly, is inseparable from justification. They're different, but they go together. If you have one, you have the other. They both come at salvation, but are different. Justification, of course, refers to what happens at the moment of salvation, whereas sanctification refers to a, a, a spiritual process in our life. Justification is the act of God because of the blood of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary and what he did. It is, enables God, when we repent and place our faith on him, to justify us, to make it as if we have never sinned. Where all of our sin, all of our transgressions was on Christ. He paid the price. We received his righteousness. We have been justified. That is a one-time event for all of eternity. Justified. Sanctification is different. The two go together, um, but they are different. Sanctification has three areas to it scripturally. We have, and there, people give different names to these. I'm going to define it as positional, progressive, and perfect. Positional deals with something that happened in the past at the moment you got saved. Progressive deals with the present where you live in regards to sanctification. And then the perfect deals in the future what happens when we die and we leave this body. So let's talk first about the positional sanctification. When you were saved, you were sanctified at that moment. At the moment of your salvation, you were set apart from God, for God right there. It was done, it's now in place. I'm going to quote from, from one commentator here. 
He said, dealing with the moment of salvation, you were set apart from darkness unto light. You were set apart from death unto life. You were set apart from hell unto heaven. You were set apart from the dominion and the destruction of sin to the dominion and the glory of God. You have been set apart. You are right now. The very moment you trusted Christ, you became a saint, sanctified, set apart for God. In other words, it's just no longer how you choose to live your life. You have been set apart. You know, you think of the vessels in the tabernacle. They were to be used only for God. That was it. It wasn't to be used in a common matter or anything else. It was for God. The very moment you trusted Christ, you were sanctified, set apart for His use. Then we have progressive sanctification. Now, this is where we live. This deals with our life right now. Because the truth is, even though we got saved and we were justified and we are sanctified in all those ways positionally that I just mentioned, all those are true right now. But we still have a sin nature. It's not done away with. We have sin all around us. Therefore, there's a work that needs to be constantly done on us to help us in our current wicked condition. That is the progressive sanctification. That is dealing with your life on an everyday basis. This is dealing with our growth, growing more closely to the Lord, moving on to perfection. One pastor said it like this. He said, it would not be wrong to say then that we are in the process as Christians of the coming of what we really are and what we shall be. What we are is sanctified. What we shall be is sanctified. And in the middle, we're trying to really be sanctified. We're trying to live up to what we are in position and what we will be ultimately. It's a good way to describe progressive sanctification. We know what's coming in the future. We know what he's done for us the moment he saved us. But in this sinful flesh, we're working towards unto perfection. Now, you're not going to get there, but that doesn't mean you don't work towards that end. This deals with our Christian life as we grow closer. And you notice it's a work that God does. As it says in verse 24, Faithful is he that calleth you who will also do it. The strength that's needed for this is what God does. You think of Zechariah 4.6, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. You can think of Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. In Philippians 1.6, where Paul was... Watch, now all of a sudden it escaped me. Yeah, being confident of this very thing that he which had begun a good work in you were performed unto the day of Jesus Christ. It's something that he does as we yield ourselves to him. You've been sanctified. You're in this positionally before Christ, but you still have the sin nature. You still have it. It's still there. So what God does, he allows for this progressive sanctification that needs to take place, that you should be conforming more and more and more to the image of his dear son. The strength to enable that literally does come from God as we yield ourselves to him. He wants, by, as, you, as he mentions the word here, holy. He wants all of you sanctified. You know, know what that means? Let's put it as simple like that. Let's, let's put that down where we live a little bit. God has zero tolerance when you hold back areas of your life. That's what he means by that. He has zero to- tolerance of you hold on to certain areas of your life that you refuse to sanctify, to set apart for God. He says, no, all of you. I get all of you. 
By the way, it's the best life to live. I mean, it really is amazing how uh, he, it was in the song. There was uh, what was the other lyrics in the song that grabbed my attention? It was when he got he got to the verse about Christ. But anyhow, it, it really it's it's what it's all about. God is not to be part of your life. He's to be your life. And then you have perfect sanctification, which is future. This deals when we die and we get to heaven. When this corruption shall put on incorruption. When this mortality shall put on immortality. We're done with the battle of sin. We are ultimately and perfectly sanctified. The battle with the flesh is over with. I look forward to that time when that's done. Uh, of what that's actually going to be like when that battle inside no longer exists. Now, he says this in the same verse. He says, I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's now getting into the goal of sanctification. And he refers again once to the coming of the Lord as he's been the theme throughout the whole book. How, listen, the goal is that when you die, that when you're there, when you stand before him, you can hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. He's praying for our growth, our purity in all parts of our life. And he mentions body, soul, and spirit. Now, there's a, I, I remember this. It brought back a, a, a sort of a sweet memory to me when I was reading this, when I was just beginning to grow, I, I was just diving into the Bible, I referred to the youth pastor I had. His name was Rich Dotson. We still communicate every now and then. And uh, he, uh, I was 15, 16 at the time, 16 at the time, and just diving into the Bible. I mean, it was, it, it's, I mean, I still wanted to be that way, but it was all so new to me. And so he would invite me over and say, hey, why don't you come on over and we'll just study it wasn't for any, any preaching or anything like that. We'd open up. And so this was the first thing that I came to in my life, the issue on, on, on body, soul, and spirit, that we had a difference on. And it wasn't major. This isn't a, a major thing. As he was talking to me, he believed that there were two parts of man, material and immaterial, which is fine. You can believe. If you believe that, that that's just fine. But I remember as we were reading and going through the different verses, like this one here in 1 Thessalonians 5, I, I didn't know the name of the word then, but it was, it, I, I, we came across it in some of the books. It was like my first theological word. It was like my very first theological word, trichotomy. And I'm like, oh, that's what I believe. I believe it's three distinct parts, body, soul, and spirit. So as I was reading this, it brought that to mind when we were sitting. I remember some of him on the couch, and, and we had everything open on it, like a coffee table there. And I was sitting on the floor at the edge of the coffee table. We're going through that. And, and so he was dealing with, hey, we just have two parts, soul and spirit are the same. And I'm going to tell him, I think we have three. I think we have three. And, and that's fine. There's a lot of really good people that believe we're just two parts, material and immaterial. I do believe that there's three, body, soul, and spirit. So let, let me discuss that. I, I do believe it. I, I believe because of the amount of times the separation occurs, like in verses like this, where it makes a distinction between soul and spirit. Now, having said that, I think what's very clear in the Scripture is that when we die, soul and spirit definitely go to heaven. I, I don't believe they're even... This is, this is McGovernism right here. This is how I understand it in my little mind. I don't believe they're two entities, necessarily. All right? I believe Hebrews 4.12 even supports that. 
All right? Because it's dealing with the effectiveness of the Word of God dividing even to soul and spirit. To me, it's putting together two things that are so close to each other that even that it can pierce into. All right? So I believe that there, I believe we are three parts, body, soul, and spirit. With the spirit, as the typical teaching is, I agree with this, is God word and sense, and our soul psyche, the Greek word that we have, dealing with our emotions, our will, and everything that that encompasses. And, but I believe, I don't believe that there's, I don't, like when we die, I don't, believe you have, I don't believe you have a soul going here and a spirit going here. I believe there's still one. There's still one, but within that one is made up soul and spirit. All right, now that everybody's confused, I'll move on. Now, I think it was very important when you understand what the churches in the first century were dealing with, why he brings up body here. And we have a version of this today, but there was a doctrine that we call dualism, or even it was, it was prominent in Gnosticism and whatnot that dealt with the body. There were certain teachings that were coming into the churches and, 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 that... Paul, I think, was defending from, realizing that this is a danger that he saw. It, it, was, it, was, it had some paganistic roots, but anyhow, it comes in, and the teaching went along this, this line, is that the body itself was corruptible and evil and sinful. There's no changing it. Not till we get to heaven. There's no changing it. It is what it is. So what that gave, the, the problem with that was this, is that, People, even those who claim to be saved, use that as a license to sin with the body. It's evil. There's no fighting it. So they would just feed the flesh. They would feed the flesh as if it was expected, and that was it. Again, Gnosticism had that. Dualism taught that. It was, a, again, a viewpoint that the inner man, the immaterial part of man is good and the body is bad, and so the body's just going to do evil. So be it. And they didn't try and fight it. Now, we, we have a similar version today, certainly not to the major sin issues it led to in the first and second century, but we have those who say things like this, God sees my heart, it doesn't matter on the outward. That's just another version of dualism. God sees my heart, it doesn't matter on the outward. I have news for you, God sees both. He does. He sees both. Now, Grant, there's major problems when you have people who claim to be right on the outside, but do nothing with the heart. That's a major problem before God. Wicked and vile is what it is. But don't think for a second, because you think your heart's right with God, that you can do whatever you want with your outside. There's no truth in that whatsoever. None. It's both. Not only should your heart be right before God, but so should your outside. <clears throat> and again, and God is the strength for all of this, for our sanctification. So the goal of it is that we can be presented blameless. And it's God that gives the strength for it. Now he goes on. Let me move on. Good. We'll get, we'll get through this. Verse 25 deals with supplication. Let me spend a little bit of time here. Brethren, pray for us. Paul, not only here, book of several of the epistles I can turn to right now, when he concludes, or even in different parts, he asks for prayer for himself. He, he, he pleads, he begs. It's usually strong what he's asking. It's a continual in, in, in the verb sense as well to please pray. And so for this, I think it's important that you pray for your pastor. Well, I do. 
Paul was a spiritual leader to these churches is what he was. There's whatever you're here now when church, you should be praying for your pastor. I'm going to quote from a pastor, and this was written in I think in 1870. I can't remember the year now. I should have wrote it down. I didn't. It might have been 18, is it 1820, 1870? Gardner Spring. He's a pastor in New York City. He wrote this about praying for your pastor. He was a pastor himself. Now, because this is about a more well over 100 years ago, you know, 150 to as much as 200 years ago. And, well, just listen to the words. We entreat the churches to regard with a more deliberate and devout mind the great work itself to which their ministers are devoted to explain the doctrines and enforce the duties of genuine Christianity. This is our duty, to defend the truth against all the subtlety and the uh, versatility of error, to sustain within their own minds that sense of God's presence and of those moral sanctions which are revealed in his word, and to experience that deep and tender impression of the things that are unseen and the eternal that are necessary to give earnestness to their preaching, as well as that consistent life and bearing that are necessary to give power to their preaching. And to do this in a way that shall adapt itself to different times, places, occasions, and characters, and without being... Uh, disheartened by difficulties, overwhelmed by enemies, and wary of the yoke which they have taken upon themselves is no ordinary work. If a people are looking for rich sermons from their minister, their prayers must supply him with the needed material. If they seek for faithful sermons, their prayers must urge him by a full and uncompromising manifestation of the truth to commend himself to every man's conscience in the sight of God. If God's people are going to expect powerful and successful sermons, their prayers must make him a blessing to the souls of men. Would they have him come to them in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of peace with a pounding heart and a burning eye and a glowing tongue and with sermons bathed in tears and filled with prayer? If so, their prayers must urge him to pray and their tears inspire his thrilling heart with a strong yearnings of Christian affection. It is in their own clauses that the people of God most effectively challenge their beloved ministers to take heed to the ministry they have received from the Lord Jesus. I think he hit that pretty good. Now let me give, and let me give a few things out here. I gave this out to senior saints back in 2017. I think it was the very first senior saints we had. And how to pray for your pastor. And so let me go through some of these here quickly. I believe I have six here altogether. I think I only gave five out at the time, but I have six. Anyhow, number one, you pray for spiritual protection from the world, the flesh, and the devil. A pastor's sin nature is no different than yours. Absolutely no different at all. Same stuff. Nothing different. Moses' anger led him to strike the rock. It also led him to kill a guy. David committed murder and adultery. That was a man for God's own heart. Peter denied the Lord. We can go on and on. So you should be praying for spiritual protection from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Number two, we see this, by the way, these are all taken from examples, usually of Paul, what Paul would ask prayer for at different times. As, not exclusively to that, and some are from other areas. 
prayer for wisdom and understanding. Um, I mean, you, you could think the importance of that when you're in the, in the position of a pastor. When, when people come to you for direction for their life, you think that's a small matter? When people are coming to you, hey, I, I, you know, it can be from huge things, career changes, who, advice about a spouse, um, you, know, who the, you know, considering asking somebody to marry them to, you know, major decisions. You want to be able to have wisdom and understanding in those moments. You want to be able to give wise counsel. So you need to be praying for wisdom and understanding that the pastor would have that. As well as when I study the Bible. I need to get it right. I need to have it right. As well as wisdom and understanding for the leading of the administration of the church. What direction to take it. then there are different battles that take place that need great wisdom. Many of which the church never find out about. Third thing to pray for. One is spiritual protection. Two, wisdom and understanding. Three, strength. Spiritually speaking and physically speaking. To have the health, both physically and spiritually, to deal with the days that will be long and daunting, to stay encouraged. You know, you can, you, you there's, there, there's times that when, and, and one thing that's great here, man, so many of you are so encouraging, and boy, does it, and it helps. Don't ever take that for granted. Um, I, I know it's true of me. I, I would guess it's true of majority of pastors. You can be your own worst critic. And, and at the times, and, and, the times that when people will come in, and that, that, that happens from time to time. They'll come in, and they will just lamb blast everything you've done wrong. The majority of pastors, I doubt that. I mean, I, I know some guys that say that, they just blow that off. I don't see how that's possible. I mean, I can't. When they walk out, I can hardly move. My first thing is, Lord, did I hurt them? What have I done? I don't want to just dismiss it. And you know when you're going to make decisions, you know, you know what, I'm going to make some mad. Some, and that, that just goes with the territory. You have to do that. You know you're going to make decisions that not everybody's going to agree with. So you just make the decision and bear down. Because <laughs> it's coming. But when you know, when you believe you had the wisdom for it, the spiritual understanding that you did it with the right heart, it helps you bear down and just weather it out. <clears throat> so you have to pray for strength. It takes a physical toll. Um, and uh, it takes a physical toll. There's times when it is, when the, whether it's discouraged or there's other needs that are great in the church or other families that are hurting, you know, and I think the Lord does that, whether you, you need to pray more during that situation or what. But sleep tends to disappear during those times. I mean, not, not, not completely. I'm not staying up all night. Anything. I don't want to portray that. But it goes down to a couple hours. 
You also pray for the preaching. Ephesians 6.19, Paul was asking prayer for that. You pray for it. The pulpit ministry is, is, is key to growth. It's feeding the people. It's, it's praying that the understanding will happen. The eyes will be enlightened. And, and it's praying for the preaching. Praying for God's blessing, God's power. You know, as it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And this one I've already included sort of in another. I'll just mention it. I have it here separately listed. But um, praying for good direction. That primarily is with leading the church and decisions that are made. And then lastly, and, and certainly not least in importance by any means. And these aren't in an order of importance. Um, and that is be praying that souls will be saved. Um, that lives will be changed. And going from there. All right, let's move on. 26 through 28. Let's finish this, let's finish this epistle up. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. We're going to have fun with that in a second. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. And then he concludes, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. The S I chose for this is social ability, because that's what it's dealing with. And it is something that's really important in verse 26, when he says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, we're going to be starting this Sunday. Just kidding. There would be no wisdom in that, all right? And we're going to see why there'd be no wisdom in that, actually. It's interesting in church history how things changed, all right? But during the first century, that was certainly a symbol of love and affection. Um, Let me read one source that talked about this when it was in place. It was in place for about, actually, 10, 11 centuries. Ancient custom had people kissing the foot and the hand, and the knee, or even sometimes the elbow of a superior, but you kissed the cheek of a friend, which was what took place. This was not, uh, this wasn't some ceremony, this wasn't some ritual, this was spontaneous, casual, affection practice, man to man, and woman to woman, where you would embrace and place a gentle kiss on the cheek. It certainly was part of the culture. There are certain, even some cultures here, where that's still in place, uh, especially more Eastern European side, it still seems to be in place even to this day in some manner. Um, But it was, again, man to man, woman to woman. It was a matter of showing affection. We're family. Now, this did change in the 12th and 13th century. You want to know why? It started getting abused. Men started kissing women. Women started kissing men. At which time, the church has made a decision, we're not doing this. And so it switched over, basically, I mean, there's different things, and, but it basically became what we still do right now, and that is the handshake. That is the handshake. Because it was, it, it was abuse. That's actually written. You can read about it. it. It started happening, and so it went to a handshake. And I believe, I believe we do need something like that, to have that measure of affection. And, and it's about affection. It's, it's amazing that people that want to use it to show how strong they are. I really don't care. It's about affection. I remember sometime in the church, there were some ladies, bam, I'm like, my goodness. <laughs> but it's, it, it's just a matter of touch, of that connection, of showing that little measure of affection. And, and some churches are more of the hugging churches. We're not, nor will we ever be. Um, for a very good reason. I have been a member of a hugging church. I've 
watch it every single service go bad without fail. And I'm not kidding. And those of you that, remember, that have been members of Hugging Churches, um, if you paid attention, I doubt there's any church that is different than what mine was. What, as a teenager, you know what I found incredible about it that I noticed as a 16, 17, 18 year old? There's about two or three women who are getting all the hugs. Yeah, the prettiest ones in church. It wouldn't be a literal line, but just about. You would see it setting up and coming to play. My mom watches me. She's going to kill me for this. I remember in the car coming back from church and my stepdad getting reamed. He probably should have. I don't know. But I remember him getting reamed. That happens. That's just the truth. We're not going to give provision for the flesh. When we were in New Guinea, Dan was watching, I don't know who I said it to. Maybe it was just Marianne. But you know the slain in the spirit nonsense. I think I brought this up before. But I was rolling because I called it before it ever happened. So they're all lined up to be slain in the spirit. And this New Guinea guy, this New Guinea charismatic, the most, he was the most popular charismatic speaker in the country. And this Pentecostal guy, and he's, he's just slaying everybody in the spirit. And they're catching them all and everything like that. Well, there's a really pretty woman in line. And I'm like, I'm watching this one guy. And I called it out for I said, that guy's going to be one to step in and catch her. You watch and see. And sure enough, she gets up there. And that guy steps in and bumps the other people out of the way. And he catches her. Just crazy. But nonetheless, the point of this was showing a measure of affection for each other. Because we're family. There needs to be that social contact that we have. That's why on Sunday mornings I like that note, we go around and we shake hands. Even before service, you're seeing that constant. We need that. It should be as a family. As family, as close friends. That should be taking place. So we need that sociability as well. And that's what, he, that's what he's encouraging there. And no, notice this, what he said, by the way, too. This caught my attention. never thought about it before. He said, greet all the brethren. The affection we do need to show against each other, you don't separate those you don't like out. Do you understand that? All. All. He finishes with the last charge, still really under the sociability. By the way, if you notice, all these require the church to meet together to take place. An assembly, which is the definition of a church, a visible local assembly. He says in verse 27, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. And remember, at this time, there's no printing presses. There's no... There's no printing press that's in existence. There's no copy. So they would get this. The church would meet. And then they would read it. They would read it. Could you imagine how attentive they would have been as they're there? Knowing. I mean, you want to hear this. I mean, here's Paul, the guy who started the church. I mean, the Apostle Paul coming down with this instruction. And I have no doubt, just like we're doing now, after they read that, you better believe that pastor there went on and elaborated more and more every single day. He would elaborate on that letter that they got. But boy, would they listen. Because it's what they needed. And for that to take place, for all these to take place, you've got to meet together. You've got to be there. We need that. 
And so as he finishes with his final exhortations, he reminds them that they belong to God. They are set apart for him. And that every part, don't hold back. Every part of you should belong to God. Don't hold back. Pray for your pastor. And remember, we need to show affection for each other. With heads bowed and eyes closed.